Hello and welcome to another Talk Archery podcast. Please like and follow this podcast so you don't miss the next episode. You can find Talk Archery on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. If you have any comments, questions or you would like to suggest a person or topic for a future episode, then please email talkarchery600 at gmail.com. In this podcast, we're talking to the lovely Samantha Stuckley from Remedy Pilates. During this podcast, we talk about her archery journey and how it helped her in her recovery from major surgery to her lower back. We also talk about Pilates and the benefits she feels it would bring to archers of all ages. So let's jump straight into the podcast. So hello, Samantha. Hello again. We've done in the intro um, all about you, but if you'd just like to just tell us a little bit about who Samantha is. Well, I'm a 40-something from uh, living in Rochdale at the moment. Been in Lancastrian all my life. I was actually born in Ormskirk, which is technically Lancashire, but also a little bit Scouse, I guess, sometimes. Um, never particularly been sporty prior to archery. Uh, liked a bit of tennis now and then, a bit of crazy golf, uh, but that was pretty much it. Um, I was never into sports. Uh, I used to go to the gym occasionally, like most people do, um, but pretty much that was it until I had a herniation of a vertebral disc. Um, and basically, if you imagine that your vertebral disc is a donut and it's got jam inside or custard, if that's your preference, um, basically the outside of the donut becomes weakened with stress over time. It's a mechanical failure. Um, so the out- outside will sort of split, allowing the jam or the custard to come out. That will then press on a nerve root, probably, or just nerves, causes inflammation and also causes an impingement on the nerve, which causes pain pins and needles, loss of sensation, things like that. So I um, had a quite a big herniation on a disc. Um, could never really tell you why or how that happened. It was probably just a gradual thing of bending forward incorrectly and incorrect posture, incorrect movement, things like that. Uh, so I had the x-ray MRI to assess the situation and then it was decided that an operation would be the best option, which would be to remove the jam that had come out of the donut. Uh, so this is going back about ten years. So um, I think it's ten years this year. Is that year, year, ten years this year. So the surgery was a complete success. That was fine, but I've been off work for I think eight months, and because my herniation was very very painful, I didn't move much during those eight months. Um, so I had to basically learn to to walk again. Um, so I was quite fortunate. And my first bit of good news after the operation is that I found a Pilates teacher who taught Pilates at a local primary school. So I went along, uh, I had no prior understanding of what Pilates was, had no idea, I was very physically weak. Um, As I say, I had to learn to walk again. Uh, The teacher of that class was a lady called Gillian Thomas. I have a lot of respect for her. I owe her a lot because she's helped me a lot over over the last 10 years. Uh, off and on with doing Pilates with her in classes and on a one-to-one basis, which was great. Um, and then she chose to retire, um, and quite rightfully so. And then she moved away and she lives somewhere lovely in Wales now. So it wasn't a sports injury or work injury? You reckon no. Um, lifestyle? Or? I think like with anything mechanical that fails, it's time and uh, repeated stress. 
that's why people get bad backs. They're constantly leaning forward. They're leaning forward into the car. They're leaning forward um, to pick stuff off the floor when they should be squatting. It's incorrect movement patterns. So that would have been going on since my university days. Uh, I used to play roller hockey at university, which is, again, a lot of leaning forward. And I used to get an achy back, and I never really thought much of it, because you don't when you're young. You don't, you're just straining. Yeah, a so... Good game. But if you repeatedly flex something, and it'll gradually weaken over time. So no, I can't... I could never say, oh, I was, you know, cleaning this, or I was doing some decorating. It, there was never any of that. It just went one day, and spectacularly... It was it was the most pain I've ever been in. And I was on, put on quite a lot of tramadol, some antidepressants, which are used for nerve pain... So quite a cocktail, really. Um, and then coming off the tramadol after the operation was, again, horrific because it was such a high dose for such a length of time. That was pretty much like train spotting, if you've seen train spotting. That's a bit of a blast from the past. But So did Pilates, got stronger. Is that, is that gradually over several months? Oh, yeah. Months? I mean, the yeah. first times I, I used to go to classes, we'd do a simple side plank and I couldn't lift myself off the floor. It was like nothing was happening. What's a side plank? It's we know You know a plank? When you do a plank, it's kind of like that, but you're on, you are on your side. So you can do it from the knees and you sort of rest on the forearm and lift your hips up. You can go down onto your feet and you can go on, use your hand as well. Uh, there's lots of variations for it. So that was um, quite a tough one to do. It's, it relies quite a lot of strength in the side of the body. So after the surgery, was you weak in a particular area? Um, well, pretty much everywhere because I hadn't moved a great deal. But looking back now, um, the reason why I had the big mechanical failure of my back was that there were muscles that were not strong enough, that were very weak, that were asleep. Um, and then there were others that were compensating too much for the fact that other, other muscles weren't working. At the time, afterwards, after the operation, I had standard physio, which is mainly for the wound and things like that. Um, but there was no rehab to address those muscular imbalances or dysfunction, they call it in the clinical world. Um, so those dysfunctions had never been addressed. They would have been with Pilates, but I think when you've got a, a quite a hefty muscular dis dysfunction, if you've got, a, it's not a syndrome, but it's maybe a, like a temporary condition called gluteal am amnesia. And basically what that means is your bum muscles have gone to sleep. They don't work. And you'll see it in people that have got quite typically flat bums. A soggy bottom. Kind of. Well, it's not even that. It's like there's nothing there. It's very flat. Um, and because those muscles turn off, your hamstrings do more work, the hip flexors do more work, and they become too tight and too just stressed, basically. So um, when you have a dysfunction such as that, you have to make the muscles relearn that they need to work, and then that'll gradually even the body out, and then hopefully you'll have less pain. But it all, all of that sort of leads on to one of the Pilates principles, and I think people who have heard of Pilates will know that it's very into the core, and that's quite a, a buzzword in fitness. But I think some people perhaps simplify it too much and think it's just the front of the body from the rib cage sort of down. The six pack. Yeah, six or eight pack if you're lucky. Apparently it's a thing. Mm. Henry Cavill's got an eight pack. Was I'm going to look it up maybe later. But the core isn't that. The core is a cylinder and it goes all around the body and it's even got a floor and a top. Um, so you have to, in order to create better spinal stability and pelvic stability, you have to work all of those muscles and then they work on the bum as well. They're all part of the scaffolding that supports the spine. The spine on its own doesn't have its own... It does have tendons, 
but they don't do a great deal. They don't work in the same way that a bicep would. It's a different kind of muscle. We, we have got a design flaw, though, haven't we? We're not designed to walk up with, um, with the back in that. I think it's... Uh, you see, talking to somebody who's got a geology degree now as well, so evolution's my dram. Um, I mean, if you think that the human form has been around for several million years, so that's enough time for us to develop the muscles that we have. I mean, the reason why we have two bum cheeks is that we walk upright. If we weren't meant to walk upright, we wouldn't have two bum cheeks, and we do. Oh, so they're not just for Instagram? Apparently not, no. no they do have no. a purpose, um, other than photographic. You know, I've, I've been told um, when it comes to gym work, if, you, if you're away for 12 weeks, you virtually have to start again. Mm. Yeah, there is a risk to that. I mean, there, there's also the, the flip side of if you have done something repeatedly for a long time, there is a little bit of muscle memory. So after a bit, little bit of training, your body will remember what you've done before. And uh, I think I've experienced that to a little degree uh, from taking a break from archery. Once I, about a month, about a week or two after coming back to it, it felt more natural. It felt easier. Um, so you think about that the muscle fibres are still there. They don't ever go away. So if you train them a certain way, uh, although they might not have been used for for a while, once you start using them, they'll remember what they did. Not in a sentient way, that'd be weird, but yeah, they do kind of remember what you've done. So you, you brought up archery there, uh, which will be great because, um, so I believe that part of your rehabilitation was you took up archery. Uh, yes, yeah, so I was looking for a sport. I didn't know what that would be. Um, so I just wanted to find something local that we could enjoy. And my friend came with me at the time and we did a beginner's course at Rochdale. I think we we're very lucky that we actually managed to get on the course, actually. This is Rochdale Company of Archers? Yeah, Rochdale Company of Archers, yeah. So um, we both live relatively local so we could pick each other up and go, which is a great thing. Because it is a bit daunting going into a room of strangers and trying to do a sport for the first time. That's quite hard to do. When I did my beginner's course, I think... Either the Hunger Games first film had just come out or it had been out. So, again, that was a bit of a factor. It was like, oh, that's be cool. We'll go and be catnip. It'd be great. Catnip. Catnip, yeah, catnip. So that was a factor. So we did the course. We really enjoyed it. Uh, I decided that I wanted to, you know, join the club. And my friend didn't, mainly because she's got children, so they've got to sort of come first, I guess. I don't think she really took to it as much as I did. Um, so I joined the club. I think it was in September that we did the course, so we went straight into an indoor season. And at Rochdale, we have, uh, I don't know whether they still do, but they had a Thursday cup. So every Thursday night, there would be a shoot. Yep, they still do that. Yeah. So we're slowly getting back to yeah. normal after COVID. So, so that, was a, that was a great thing to do every week. It was like a really, it was a real high point of the week, really, because it was such good fun. There was lots of good people there that I shot with over quite a number of years, and we got on really well. So I got into archery, I was using the beginner's equipment and after a couple of weeks it became apparent that I wasn't, you know, I needed something, I needed my own stuff basically. So I was on a budget because I didn't have a very well paid job at the time. So um, I think I asked Russ, reader, for some advice as to what to get, what was within my budget things like that, um, and he said, I've got a bow that you could buy off me if you want. I think it was his wife's bow. So I said, oh, okay, how much do you want for it? And he said, £100. So I said, oh, that's fine, you know, I, can get, I can pay £100 for it. So um, so I got that bow, it had been used. I'm not sure if it was actually secondhand to Russ, actually. I don't know whether you want to check with him, but I can't remember whether it was. So I got the string all ready, bought my first lot of arrows, and they were uh, Eastern Jazz, which are horrific. 
but great for a beginner, I suppose. And then just started shooting at the Thursday Cup. Um, and because I was single at the time and I had a nine to five job at Sandbrook Park quite close by, I could quite, it was quite easy for me to get to the club after work because it was on the way home. So um, I used to go and, and practice shooting as well on my own or with others. That was always good. I don't know whether I trained properly or not really because I, I can only really say what I did. And over the years, people have said, oh, can you train this person? They're interested in barebow. And I'd always say, well, I'm not a coach. I can only tell you how I do it and it might not work for you. Is barebow your discipline? Oh, yeah. Barebow's always been my discipline. I don't know why, whether it was just... To be honest, I never really got out of it from, from the beginner's course. I mean, after a while, they put the sight on. And I didn't really get on with it. And then the bow that I got from Russ, I don't think it came with a sight. I can't remember, but I don't think it did. He probably wanted to charge you extra for that. Maybe so, yeah, I don't know. No, I don't think it did, actually. So I didn't have an option, I had to go bare bow. And I think the reason why I stuck with it is that I started to get good at it. I think if I'd not been good at it, I would have put the sight on, got the stabilisers. But one of my concerns was the weight of the bow, which is why I, I, have, why I stuck with Bearbow as long as I did because I didn't want to have too much stress. My my daughter does at Bearbow and she's got these weights on the front and it, once her her bow's set up, it's actually heavier than my recurve bow with all with yeah. my stabilizers and side rods. So she must have a really strong left arm. Yeah, I mean I, I've never used weights, never used them. I I've just I never I think with a lot of my archery and the successes that I've had, I've always wanted to not change things too much. Everyone's superstitious once you start winning. Well, no, it's not so much, that doesn't come from a superstitious point of view. It comes more from a scientific point of view in, in that the scientific method is that if you want to find what's affecting an outcome, you can only change one variable. So I was always quite strict with myself and it made sense to my mind because I've got a science background that if I wanted to change one thing, it only had to be one thing. And I've seen many in archer, experienced archers and good, you know, good archers at competition, couple of like one bad end and the fiddling, next end still bad, fiddle again. And it's just like, no, you know what works. You've done it enough times. It's you, it's you, not the equipment, it's you that's changing. You know, you do have to take into account the the weather to a degree, but they, they were just constantly changing. They were changing it too quickly to find out whether it had made a difference. And I know that the pressures of competition are there and that's always a factor as well. But I think I think when you've got more variables, you lose some confidence perhaps. And I really do believe that being a barebow archer for a good considerable length of time, and I don't mean time in terms of months or years, I mean in terms of arrows, I was very fortunate that I could train every day. And when I was tra when I was competing the most, I was doing at least a hundred hours a day, if not more. You know, I was putting the time in. Really, was putting the time in because I'd be going on the way home from work. So I'd finish at work five, ten minutes to the club, set up, do an hour, hour and a half, go home and have tea. Was this quite an instant love of archery? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. What yeah. was it that clicked straight away? I don't know. Yeah, it's really hard to... It was more like an instinctu instinctual thing. I just I just liked it. That's why you're bearable. You're instinctive, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I, the way that I trained, I um, because when you're indoors, I was only pulling about 28 pounds on my first bow, on the Samic and Cap combo. So it was never very hard for me in terms... Well, it was for me physically, you know, especially after being still for so long. 
Um, so I did have to build up to it. But I think £28 was what that boat, that was the maximum it ever got to. It never went, went beyond that. Which is great for indoors. What about outdoors? I didn't find it a problem outdoors. So this leads on to the, how I became an outdoor archer. Um, so obviously I had quite a successful year uh, indoors. I think I maybe set a couple of the records for the indoor shoots, mainly because I was probably the only bear watcher there. But it's always nice to have those little increments of change that you can get. Um, I think during that time there was a Christmas and I asked for some new arrows for uh, archery. From from Santa? Yeah, from Santa. I'm, I think that's actually getting ahead of myself. I think that was actually the, the second indoor season that I asked for new arrows. So I did my first indoor season with the Eastern Jazz and then went outdoors. So this comes down to what I think is one of the biggest things that made me good and also how quickly I got good. I need to get a drum roll here. Yeah, this so, is going to be a good tip. So basically, um, I shot with a lot of people at the club. Russ was one of the people that was there the most often because he was just so into it. And he's a great guy to sort of helping you be encouraging and he's, he's really helpful with the equipment. Um, I'm not great with the equipment. I'm not an expert. If it works... I'll shoot it. But then I've always been quite keen to sort of not be too to find ways of working with it when it doesn't when it's not entirely correct as well. So I think it was coming up to I must have, um, I think it must have been April time. So maybe it was sort of end of February. Russ said, Oh, there's a shoot coming up. You should, you know, jump on it. And I said, oh, Okay, well, what is it? And he said, an Albion. And I'm like, no idea what that is and so uh, I think I must have looked it up on, on the on the wall on the, the club to see what an Albion was um, so I looked at the distances how many dozens such and such obviously I've never been to an archery shoot prior to that apart from the indoor ones and so I said okay and I think I may have shot outside a couple of times before that so this will also be your first inter-club one yeah so that was held at um, Asherson Bowman which is again another area that's been really influential for my archery. So Russ said, enter this competition. And I think there was a novice shoot in the May. And I think this was in the March, April time. I can't remember what time of year it is, but it's quite early on in the year normally. Um, so I joined, you know, joined the, the competition, signed up. And I said to Russ that on the week before, because it's on a, I think it was on a Sunday, I said, I haven't got any sight marks for these distances, so I need to go and get some. So he took me to his training field. And I think we spent a couple of hours like the Saturday before or the weekend before getting the sight marks in because I didn't have any for those distances. I was shooting three finger under and about an inch and a half away from the knock underneath. Your bare sight marks, are you string walking or what are you doing? That time I was because I was only pulling 28 pounds. And up until that point, I had been shooting at the club three fingers under. So um, I was used to that. Uh, but to get the distance, I had to string walk quite considerably down. And I was using sight marks above the, the the target, depending on the distance, either above the target or below. Very rarely was I aiming at the target. That's another thing with my archery that I've always, sit, always sort of looked at in that I'm a gap archer, so I don't point at the target. So you're not looking straight down the arrow? You... Where do you, where's the, the knock, is it? Uh, I always have my index finger corner of the mouth. That's how I've always done it. Now I, I do split fingers or continental. Is it continental? Like the European method. So you're one of these that has, to have the plaster on the nose? Oh, I'll catch my nose, yeah. That's a, that's a bye-bye, that, really. Yeah, that's quite a common thing. But yeah, index finger to side to side of mouth. I would always sight down the arrow, but for obviously for greater distances, I'd be aiming at a cloud or a branch of a tree if there's one behind it. For shorter distances, a bit of blade of grass. 
fight longbow archers do basically yeah so but then for indoors i'd be you know aiming at the floor so that was quite difficult it, but then it's i'm just used to it I, I that's what i do i just aim that way uh but now so for a portsmouth you're aiming at the floor oh yeah you're like oh yeah quite quite considerably under oh, yeah right. I can't wait to try that. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's my what daughter's I, challenged me to bear bows. So. Yeah, just bear in mind what your weight is because obviously if you've got a higher poundage, you need to come up a bit. But yeah, so that was um, that first weekend. So we got the sight marks and then I went to the competition. I'm not sure there was any of the bear bow archers. There might have been one guy, I can't remember, or maybe a couple, I can't remember now. It's so long ago. But then I won the bear bow category. Congratulations. Yes, so that was my first competition. Did you get a nice trophy? Uh, I think I did for that one, yeah. Probably medal as well. So then that that was the beginning of the the sort of outdoor season for me. So I'd signed up to do the novice in May, which again was Asherton and a few other shoots around the county, maybe down into Cheshire, and then the Lancashire Championships at the end of the uh, end of the season in August. And I can't remember off the top of my head with an Albion. Is it an Albion eighty yards for a lady? I can't remember what the maximum is now. I've lost so much knowledge about archery; it's crazy. I think it's eighty. Which is the maximum distance for a lady? I think you do four. Does you do four dozen and then two dozen? I can't remember. People would be shouting at the uh, Richard. Yeah. However, they listen to the podcast. I'm not sure myself offhand. Yeah, I, I think it's the maximum distance. Um, so because of Russ's encouragement, he was very sort of matter of fact, and he just said, just you know, sign up for the shoot. Just go ahead, have some fun. You'll experience shooting outside. You'll experience being in a competition. And I just blindly did it. I didn't know any different. I didn't know it was that was not the thing to do. And then after coming back from that competition and people started to shoot outside a bit more, you know, contemporary people of my my sort of experience started to go outside, uh, they were all, you know, start at 30 yards and then we'll go up to 40 and then we'll go up to 50 and, like, taking months to get there. And I went out straight away with not really realising it to the maximum. So you didn't put yourself off, you just enjoyed so it. And... Not that I'm, I'm saying, oh, I just was brave and I just did this and I didn't do that. So Russ just said, end this competition, so I did. That was it. I didn't even, I thought, oh, I'm entering a competition. I didn't think of the distances. I just thought, well, that's what you do. So I never got that fear of distance. I was out there quite quickly doing the maximum. And I think that that again gave me the confidence then to sort of carry on with it. So I'm pretty sure that by the time I got to the um, to the novices, which was in May, again at Asherton early May, I think by that point I was already a first class. Excellent. Oh, I wasn't first. Maybe a bowman. I think I was maybe a bowman. Because I think that's one of the things that, oh, was it first class? Oh, do you know, I don't know anything anymore. Whatever one it was, it's the one that you can't be if you're a novice. Right. You either have to have been shooting for less than two years or 18 months, whatever it is, or uh, such and such a class lower than that. So I was above that. But because I've only been shooting two years, I could still go ahead and shoot. So it went on from there, and then I entered more and more competitions, and then the Lancashire's, um, and I won that. And I think, again, because of the sort of the low amount of bearbow archers that there have been in the past... Um, I did make records with a lot of the shoots, um, which was, again, a nice nice thing to have. I don't think anybody else really cares about them outside of archery, but I don't know. So I managed to get them, and then after that, it was more. It was a case of returning back to indoor season and then doing indoor championship. But in that first year, I, you know, I met a lot of people. As a bearbow archer, when you're at competition, because there's not many bearbow, bearbow archers, although I wasn't at the time, um, you can never... I don't think I ever went to a shoot where it was only a boss of bearbow archers. So they stick you with the longbow archers. 
And longbow archers and bearbow archers, I think, have a lot of similarities in that they're a bit more relaxed because there's not the fiddling with the equipment that you have. You know, like a, a longbow archer will be like, oh, well, I was aiming over there, but it's gone nowhere near. And, oh, I've got a goal today. You know, like, it's, it's, there's a lot more surprise. They, they always seem nice and relaxed, and then you see the arrows flying. They're, they're much more slow, graceful. Yeah. And they have the arc. And then at the other end, you've got the recurve or the, or the compounds, and they're just... Going, yeah, so I think I think that helped as well at competition because because I think when when you're a competitive actor, especially when I was, it, it was always the same people that you saw at competition. You personally was competitive. Yeah, well, only with myself, not with other people, mainly because there's nobody else there. But yeah, I mean, I think with archery, in my mind, you can only ever really compete against yourself. There might be other people there that are shooting the same competition as you, but it's you that's doing it, and you've got to do your best. Um, and as long as you're doing that, that's the most important thing. So, um, and I think because it's such a, a solitary sport, you can you can win or lose a competition in your mind before you've even picked up the bow. It's a real mind game. And it's with, like Absolutely. you said, it's totally with yourself. That's why battling. I'm so concerned when you see Rico Vatch's fiddling. And it's, you know, it's not that they don't know what they're doing. They haven't got the right sight marks and there's something wrong with the sight marks. It's not that at all. It's just that they've allowed the doubt into the mind. And then they just start fiddling. So have you tried the other disciplines? Compound, um, longbow? I have held a compound bow. The I dark, think dark side. Yeah, I've never actually loosed anything from one. I don't really like the idea of using something that could like literally take your head off if it snapped. That's always a bit of a worry. Um, and also the fact that they were, you know, designed to hunt animals and it's like, that's a bit cruel. Yeah, so I mean, I don't, I don't obviously, if people have their own preferences, mine has always been bare bow. Longbow? I did have a longbow for a while. I did do, I think I did maybe one or two uh, shoots as a Lancashire County archer for, with longbow because they don't use bare bow, which is a great disservice. So but, uh, longbow's obviously similar. I always think longbow archery is more shooting in squats because you've got to pick up a lot more arrows than you do with anything else. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a bit frustrating. And I think the, the, you have to admit that consistency is just not something you can do with a longbow. It's just, there's just too many variables and they're the ones that you can't even control. You know, like if you're taking a bit of a bend on a on a, an arrow or something or if deflections aren't 100% right, there's a lot more uh, that you can't control that can affect a longbow. So it's an area weapon. It's, it's more suited to clout or something like that. Um, well, I mean, I suppose. I mean, I, I mean, people can correct me if I'm wrong, which probably will be. But longbows were never meant to be an accuracy thing. It's more like a, like a what's it called? Like a, not a carpet bomb, but it's more like a machine gun. It area cover so area rather than cool. shoot at people. You know, you've got like, if you've got 100, ar 100 archers loosing arrows into the air, you're going to hit, you know, quite a lot of people coming down. So uh, that if people can be good with a longbow and, and accurate and consistent, and I know that there are people out there that are like that, then that's just, that's like the best you could be. Apart from the people that can do on horses, because that's just like, how do you even do that? But they're recurves anyway, so that's a bit different. So yeah, I mean, longbow is um, it's a different sort of family, I guess. It felt more like a family, because you'd go out and you'd see the same people there, or you'd be like, oh, you're going to the shoot, and I'll kind of share your tent, things like that. You know, I've done really, really good shoots with longbow archers because there haven't been any bearbow archers that I've known that have been there. So I've got a lot of like com companionship and community with with longbow archers as well. Yeah, so you're not the same discipline, but this is like except you with open arms. Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think that that makes it a lot easier to go to competition. The social side. The so yeah, I mean that's one of the reasons why. Another one of the reasons why I found after I joined the club 
that I really loved archery is that it was a social event as well. You know, you went every Thursday and then we all broke and had like a brew halfway through and maybe a biscuit or beforehand and you go and do some practice and you'd see somebody else there and you'd sit down and have a brew with them or you'd, you know, talk about various things. So it was a very social um, aspect and, and that was one of the strengths of archery really and I'm guessing that a lot of people have missed that over the last couple of years because you haven't been able to be social in that way because we that, that that Thursday cup was busy you know we'd have two details and there'd be a lot of people shooting it was great fun and then when it was longbow archery at well when I was with the longbow archers you know we'd have a laugh um Mike one of the guys from Derbyshire I'm not sure if he's still shooting and I can't unfortunately remember his surname but he always used to come around with some galaxy chocolate and if you saw Mike was on the, on the shooting list you're like yes and there's been times and I've looked on a shooting list seen where I was and then seen where he is so that I know I'm going to get the chocolate like halfway through and somehow even in the height of summer it would be freezing cold chocolate I don't know how he did it Magic. But he did it. Yeah, he was magic. Yeah, he was a really nice guy. Other things that helped with archery were things like the the badges that, you know, people can aim towards indoors and outdoors. Mike, again, did the Derbyshire-specific ones, which were always quite sought after. They weren't enamel, but they were close, and they, they were always quite nice to get. They weren't official in any, in any way, but... Also sought after, just because the badges were pretty. Actually, they, they were enamel, yeah, yeah, they were. They were I think he used to have, I think it was wheat sheaves for outdoors and cats for indoors. Different colours according to almost like the classification levels as was. I don't know what they are now. Um, so if you've got a certain colour, they'd be quite rare to get. And I know that the classification badges that you get awarded from Archery GB, if they still do them, I don't know. I know that the year I got my classification uh, badge was when they changed it from like the really cool ornate ones to a really boring one. And it's like when people, when they said, oh, the, the badges are rubbish this year. I was like, oh. So I was quite disappointed that I got one of the boring ones, but I still got it. So um, so have you got a quite large uh, trophy cabinet? Um, Not so much trophies, but I've got a lot of medals. And a lot of them, like the Lancashire Archery ones, they're, it's the same sort of embossed medal and the engraved the year on the back. I've got some of the, somewhere they've just put that the, uh, the stickery bit for the, the archery logo of the club that you're shooting at so i've got a few various ones of them i've got um one that's like a like a coaster i think that was from the ncas shoot and it's like a little coaster that you can put your brew on and like you know they've got it all printed out and that that was quite a good one i think when you shoot at eccles you get a neckles cake as part of your trophy oh i've got to go for that one yeah that was always pretty good because you've got to feel sorry for me i've not got anything yet i've, no, got, I've, got, I've got a couple of postman's badges but my children they've got loads of them and yeah. it's not fair there'll be time there'll be time oh, i don't know no I ne no i never say never never say never so yeah i mean obviously like i say you have the community of, of archers that, that generally stick to local shoots and um, as i got into my second outdoor year and i was shooting more and more I had an upgrade of my arrows, so I asked Santa for new arrows and I got them. Again, Russ helped me enormously finding out what size to get, what pile to get, how to fit them together, which I did at the club using the gas hob and the glue. So I built my own arrows and um, as I mentioned before, I'm big into the scientific method. So that was a big vari variable for me. I was still using the Samic and Cat bow, never changed the poundage on that, still 28 pounds. But overnight, going from the Eastern Jazz Arrows to the ACEs, easy, three, uh, 30, 35 points increase. 
easily with no other changes that was the only change obviously a massive difference outdoors it makes it easier to um to, sh to sort of aim because you've not got the sort of drag and the resistance caused by the larger arrow and the than the lighter arrow so as a bear bow that's probably the maximum you can do in to, to change I your personally, equipment. I mean, personally, what I did in my archery career, my whole archery career, in terms of all my classification and the, the competition trophies and records and anything else like that, only ever done with that bow that cost £100 and then the arrows, the ACs, and they, they, I think they were 250 at the time for 12 That was it. And that got me to fourth in the country on to, in terms of the rankings. And then it also got me to Grandmaster Bowman. Excellent. So no weights, didn't go up in poundage. But that was personal preference because I didn't want to have an injury or hurt my back and put myself back, really. String, finger tab, anything special there? Uh, I'm a weird bear watch. I use a longbow bracer. Always have, always will do. Massive leather thing. Just Looks That's good. just what I like to use. Doesn't make so much Great for tanning, really, unfortunately, such a big thing. And again, I also use a longbow glove, which even longbow archers don't tend to do. But that's what I've done since day one. I think various people have said, why don't you use anything finger tab? Don't know. Just do. That's just how I do it. Why don't I, why don't I anchor under my chin? Just never have done. Never progressed beyond that in a beginner's. But yeah, I just shoot how I shoot. It might not be right. It might not be technically right. But at the end of the day, your aim is to get an arrow into a target. And however it gets there, that's up to you. So I've, I've seen people that have got what you would consider to be weird technique. And some of that might come down to their physiology, just that the way that their shoulders built is different to yours. The way that, you know, they might have had a prior injury, that makes them do a thing a certain way. So I think um, finding your own way of, of art, how to be an archer is uh, is good. But though that that big change that I had with the with the arrows was the, the biggest thing I've ever done. And then after I'd done... The, the year where I got my um, GMB scores and I, that was in the bag sort of thing. I think after that, um, I had about maybe six to eight months and then I couldn't train as much as I wanted to because I started an apprenticeship. So I couldn't train during the, every night because I was in Blackburn and there was nowhere to shoot. I didn't want to travel back because I'd have to travel back to Blackburn. So my archery just died off basically because I just couldn't practice. And I would definitely like to get into it more, but I think... I'm in a different place in life now, so I'm not sure. I can't really commit the same time anymore that I used to. And I think time is the biggest, another big factor in why I got as, as good as I got. I put the time in. You know, I didn't turn up on Thursday Cup and maybe, maybe once during the week. I really did put the time in. 100 hours a day. Yeah. So that's quite good. So we've established that you've got this love of Archie. How did that help you in your recovery from your, your injury? I think in a way, um, well, obviously, if, if you think about if you're going to do a full Hereford or a York, you're walking quite a lot. And activity in terms of movement is always very good for backs. Backs don't like to be still. You like to move them. And squatting if you're a longbow. And squatting if you're a longbow. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen people pick up arrows and I've, been, I've winced because I just think you just hurt your back. If you were thinking about the repeated physical stress of something, if you are not bending correctly, then it's just you're going to end up with a herniation at some point. Most people do. It's like death and taxes. Most people after a certain age will have a disc herniation of some kind. Some of them will never get pain from it. They won't even know. Uh, some people will get a lot of pain from it. So that, again, that, that's one of the things that I, that I see about archery that, that people could have a bit more education on. 
bit, a bit of knowledge about how to do things better. Not just in a warm-up, I mean... A warm-up's important. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been a competitive archer, so I've been to, to, to competitions, and my warm-up was, was like the sighters. I will freely admit that I didn't do warm-ups. Warm-ups are important to prevent injury, and that's for any activity that you do. Even things like unloading the car, like after a heavy shop or something, don't just go straight to it. Uh, cold muscles don't like movement, and that's when you get injury, things like that. So warm-ups are, are very important, and they're important for everyone, but they become more important, I think, as you get older, because you've had more stresses in life, things start to weaken, and you just got to be more aware of things, I think. So there is a way of, of warming up, and it's not necessarily for archery that you would just grab an exercise band and half-heartedly sort of, you know, tuck it between the hands and, you know, like pretend like you've drawn a bow. I mean, that's that's okay, but there's a lot more that you should be doing with your body to warm up. So, so what would you recommend? Um, things like more like shoulder rolls, taking the arms out into a big circle and tracing them round. Um, I do one of my warm-up um, exercises for, for Pilates is when you take both hands up to the ceiling and then you try and push one hand a little bit higher than the other and that really stretches down the, out, the, the, the side of the body with actually being... Uh, it's predominantly, obviously, an upper body sport, so you do need to be aware of looking after your shoulders. Um, and I've seen a lot of archers that have had injuries because they've gone up in poundage too quickly, probably, or they've gone up too quickly in poundage and the technique's not been right, or the form. Uh, form is everything for good movement, which is, again, another reason why I kept my archery quite basic because I wanted to make sure I'd nailed that form before I had any extra loading. And I was just fortunate enough that I could get the distances using that and I never needed to add the weight in. I have got a bow now that is um, more, well, a thousand a thousand percent more technical than, than my Samic riser. I've got one of those Spigarelli uh, bear bow risers, which is really cool and very technical. I can't remember what limbs I've got, but I think I've got some heavier limbs. And I've, I never really practiced enough with that to find out how different that would make my archery. If I get back into archery, I'll be interested to see if I put the same time in, which would be quite hard for me to do unless I win the lottery, uh, put the time in and see whether or not my scores can be anything like what they were. I don't honestly know whether I'd ever be able to get to where I was. I just don't know. So as, as a warm-up, though, would, would you suggest, um, again, I've come from a martial arts background where we... we do a little bit of cardio quickly, fast, and, and then we do lots of strength training, lots of pulling and pushing with partners. Mm. Obviously, now we're not going to do that with um, archers, but how quickly, how should they get the heart racing before? Um, I think one of the best ways to get your heart rate to increase and to sort of warm up, especially for, for winter archery or indoor archery, because it can get quite cold indoors sometimes, is to do some squats, things like that, squats or walking lunges, because you're using the biggest muscles in the body you will generate heat and you need, you need to get the body warm before you start to start putting the repeated stresses through it so it's a combination of something generating the warmth getting the mobility in the the joints and then warming up the muscles individually as well um you Joints will only lubricate themselves with use. That's why a lot of people get stiffness. And then because they've got stiffness, they don't move as much. But it's actually a case that you have to lubricate your own joints. That's how the synovial fluid gets into the joints. It's by moving. It's like a self-lubricating joint, essentially. That becomes more of a problem. Not much a problem, but it's harder to, 
to achieve that in the lumbar spine, which is the lower the lower back. There's not a great deal amount of movement in there. So what I would say for a warm-up would be to warm up the shoulders and then maybe a little bit of torso, torso rotation just to get into the mid-back because obviously you are twisting slightly with, with your draw, but also to warm up that lower back because if you're pulling arrows out of a target, you don't need to do that correctly. If you're bending to pick up arrows, you need to be doing that correctly. So there's ways to warm up properly for archery. Obviously... There's a ways to shoot correctly for archery. I'm not a coach, so I, I'm not great on the whole, you know, like how you draw and stuff like that. And I've never been, I've never really focused too much on it so much. I think I was told a few times by the Lancashire County coach that my, I did something weird or something. But that's just how I've always done it. And if I always think, well, and let, people would say to me, try this, it's, it'll make a difference. And we have how much of a difference is if, if it's going to be a couple of points. I'm not willing to put the time in to relearn something that doesn't really make a difference. Whereas if you're going to tell me this, so like my arrow is overnight, 30, 40 points difference. If I can't get that much difference by putting a weight on the front of my bare bow, I'm not bothered about learning. That's not why I do it, you know. Although saying that at, um, at the Masters, it's quite apparent with the bare bows, it, most of them do have their weights on the front. So I was like, oh, okay. So but that leads on to like your maybe questions about equipment and I, I'm not an expert but I don't think you need to spend a lot or you can get sucked down that rabbit hole quite quickly throw cash at it yeah but the thing is if you've got a my bow is a hundred pounds that can be on a bow stand next to one that costs a thousand but on the road we don't do anything do they? it's you that makes them do something so I'd rather spend the time on yourself making sure that your technique is right and it's right for you and then you can add the equipment in and see whether it makes a difference. Just going back to the, the warm-ups, though, um, archery covers a wide age range from 8 to 80. Would you recommend the same warm-up for a junior and for a senior? The short answer would be yes and no. So in terms of what you're doing, yes, because the human body is the human body. But as you age, there are things that you have to consider more. So, for example, one thing for that might be if you were doing a warm up where you were taking your hands or your arms overhead repeatedly. The kids will do that, no problem. If you've got hypertension, that's not good for you. You might, you know, have a, a dizzy spell, something like that. Or, for example, if I was to tell someone to rotate their upper torso but keep their lower body, like their lower body still. Most people who are healthy or younger will manage that fine. If you've got osteoporosis, you need to let your hips move with your torso because otherwise you're putting too much stress through the bones of the body, which have become weak because you've got osteoporosis or osteopenia. So it's not necessarily that there's a separate workout. Like with Pilates, there are Pilates exercises. There's the modification for you that's right. And, and everyone's will be different. But the, the older population, because you have more what the clinicians call comor comorbidities, so that's basically um, illnesses and, and diseases and conditions that are, are life-threatening if they're not controlled. Um, so things like diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, osteoporosis is another one, depression, anxiety. So if you have somebody like myself, for example, I have... I have chronic back pain. Luckily, you still suffer now? Oh, yeah, I will for until the end of time. I have chronic back pain. It's what I've got. If I had that and maybe, let's say, diabetes, so if I'm type 1 diabetic as well, 
I have to monitor my blood sugar, you know, make sure that that's kept correct. I might also have a bit of depression because I've got chronic back pain. One of the biggest factors is mental health. So if you've got a chronic condition, you are more disposed to have, you know, depression and anxiety because it does affect your mind because you just, you know, you're in pain all the time. Never seems to go away. You wonder whether that's it. And then you have a you might have a really bad flare up. People call it with back with um chronic pain. So you'll have a period of time where it's it becomes a more of an acute pain. Because chronic pain is always it's always there in the background. It's like a constant sort of hum. Toothache. Kind of, yeah. I mean, toothache, obviously, that's more of an acute pain because it will eventually go away. Um so there's acute pain if you stub your toe, it hurts immediately. An hour later, it's gone, it's fine. But chronic pain, it's a constant thing. Uh, luckily, I've got to the point now where I don't need to have the medication. But that's because I've become aware of what I can and can't do. I'm, feel, I'm feeling guilty now. I've put you on quite a stiff chair. No, no, it's fine. No, these are things that you allow for. Like, I've just been at that yarn dyeing course and... Part of it, I had to lean over a table and leaning forward is one of the worst things for me. And so I started to do it and I had to try and stop myself and correct myself and do it properly for me. So I think when you've got people that have multiple conditions, I think maybe as you get older, I mean, when I do my Pilates classes, I have to, for my insurance, do a medical questionnaire. It's mainly to catch things like heart disease, heart conditions, hypertension, um, any sort of clinical things that you've been diagnosed with. So if you've been cl clinically diagnosed with scoliosis, which is a curvature of the spine that's a bit abnormal, if you've had a hip replacement, things like that. So I have to find those people to make sure they're okay to exercise. And once I know if they have got a condition, so if, I, if I've got a lot of people in the room that have got vertigo, I'll try and keep them quite still. If I've got people that have got bad backs, I won't have them going down to the floor and then back up again and down to the floor because it's just going to aggravate the back. So there are ways and means of, of, of tailoring things to you. And I think sometimes with archery, um, especially with the older populations, is that you're not really taking that into account with things like warm-up. It might be down to personal... People don't personally know that as well, perhaps, but... I because I don't I don't work full time at the moment. I do watch um, I watch BBC News in the morning, and then there's the program after it called. Oh, do you know I can't remember things. It's because you're on a podcast. That's why the yeah. memory's gone. More, it's not it's not this morning. It's something something live. And it's like a magazine show. They talk about various topics, but they used to have a segment in it called Strictly Fitness, and it used to be one of the Strictly dancers, one of the professional dancers, professional dancers advising people how to be more active and going through an exercise routine. And they do, to be fair, they do have somebody sat down in a chair and then she's doing it or he's doing it and then there's somebody else stood up doing it. And I've watched them and winced because I know that if you've got certain conditions, that is so bad for you. But that's on television. Did they give a disclaimer at the beginning saying if you've got I think they probably do, you know, X, yeah. check to the physician before you take up any exercise. But, again, that's a, that's a bit of a cop-out in my mind because... What doctor's got the time to review your history and decide whether you're not, you're capable of doing exercise? It's kind of the wrong person, really, to to find that. So I'm always conscious that um, people are different, and also what you can do one day isn't what you can do the next day. Especially if you've got chronic pain because you have flare-ups where it's really bad, then it'll settle down. A lot of times with, with chronic pain, because it's, it settles down, you think, oh, I'll be able to do that today. It don't feel so bad today, so you'll overdo it. 
and then you're back to a flare up. So I think uh, for that, for archery, I think you need to consider perhaps some of the older populations, but also doing things like pulling arrows out of targets. I think you taught how to do it correctly in terms of a health and safety point of view so that you don't stab someone who stood behind you. But from a mechanical point of view, from a biomechanical point of view, there's a correct way of doing that as well. My bias is that I always think of the back. So I would always, you know, try and make sure that people are aware of how to do that correctly. And then also for the people that have a bit the misfortune of losing an arrow on the ground, there's ways of looking for those arrows and picking them up. And I've seen many, many, many people pick them up incorrectly. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that they might be aware of how to pick something up correctly, but they just don't do it. Incorrectly in, in damaging themselves, not the arrow. Yeah. Oh, and in the arrow, yeah, that, that's not a, a thing. I mean, there, there is a way that you should do it. And it is inherently difficult because you are leaning down onto the floor, but there are ways that you can do the most to protect your back. Um, I was always really conscious at going to outdoor shoots in that I never felt comfortable moving a target on my own because selfish though it may seem, I didn't want to have to go through that experience of an operation ever again. And I would be really sort of hesitant to pick up a target. And I know you meant to help in the shoot and everything and I, I just couldn't do it. I just didn't want to be back there on that operating table waiting to be wheeled in. I just didn't want to have to go through that again. But that was just my personal experience. So there's ways of doing that correctly. Uh, you can't escape the fact that they are heavy pieces of kit at the end of the day. They have to be. Uh, I think Eccles have probably got the best version of that that I've seen. That They have them. Obviously, their advantage there is that they have a permanent outdoor field, but they have them on wheels. It's still a nice two-man operation, though, isn't it? Oh, it should be a two-man operation, yeah. I mean, Or two-lady operation. Well, two persons, yeah. I mean, if you can ever split a job, obviously, especially when it's a heavy load like that, you should always try to do so. But if you think about how many times you might bend down and pick up an arrow, even if it's not, if it's not yours, if you're helping out somebody else... That's repeat. If you're just going to constantly lean forward from the back, not bend into a squat thing, you're going to repeatedly just hurt your back a little bit more. I've just recently done a health and safety course, and you the standard for UK is 25k. You know, if you as long as you're picking it up at a hip height, you're not and you're not constantly lifting it above your head or leaning forward into a vehicle. 25k for a single person. Agriculturally in France, it's 115k that they can mm. regularly move about, and that's quite a jump. Yeah, I mean, man manual handling, they, they do obviously, they, they describe how to pick up something like a box from the floor. So you squat down around it, don't you? Then you use the arms to get a good hold, and then you stand up. But how you stand up, um, mechanically is is quite important. The way that I help people to learn how to squat from a Pilates point of view is that you always, if you're coming down into a squat, you always do what, do what we call a hip hinge, which is basically as if you're trying to push somebody away who's stood behind you. So you kind of come into a bit of a bow situation and then you bend your knees and then you go down. Very different to the squats that you see people do in a gym. But by doing it that way, your back is staying in a nice straight line and you get into the floor, and then to get back up, we don't think so much about lifting up, it's more about pushing the hips forward. A lot of time with muscle dis dysfunction, you can kind of distract yourself by thinking about an, something else that you're meant to do at the same time, and that'll make it easy for your body just to do what it should be doing naturally. 
because you're distracting your mind. Not, you're not overthinking it. Yeah, because you, if you've got chronic pain, like one of my one of my clients, he's got he's always worried about his his knee giving way. So it it does mean that when he needs to go upstairs, he struggles because he's conscious that it could give way, could give way. But if you were to give him something else to do with his hands or his arms whilst he's doing it, because the chronic pain, it sort of it makes you 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 bright your brain override the body because you're very hypersensitive to like the fear of pain and pain. So if you distract yourself whilst you're doing something, you'll achieve it. Because it's it's not that the body can't do something, you're stopping yourself doing something. And that is quite a difficult hurdle to over overcome, really. But then when you talk manual handling and they tell you to do that. Um, you know, to pick up the, the box off the floor. It's not taking into account people's difference in terms of their hip morphology because the way that your hip joint is structured is very unique to you. You can look at a skeleton of two different people and the the, the, the ball and socket joint, which is what, what the, you know, the hip is, very different. The angle that the femur comes out of the hip is completely different to somebody else. And then there's the actual size of the, of the actual joint that's completely different. Same with the shoulder as well. Very sim the similar joints um, to a degree. So if you've got a, a pelvis and a hip sort of morphology where your bones come out quite vertically sort of straight as if you're looking down the body, then you can't really spread your legs wide or, you know, around a parcel to pick it up. But if you've got more of an open hip, you can do that more easily. So it's not just a case of saying this is the way to pick up a parcel. You've also got to consider if someone's got a bit more timber at the front, how are they going to be able to physically get hold of that parcel? When I worked in a job where, you know, manual lifting was quite commonplace and people would pick up stuff way beyond their abilities that they should they just shouldn't have done it but they did um, and that causes the repeated stress which leads to the failure things like that and um, you don't want to start going down the road of having multiple herniations or a bad herniation and trying to fix it my osteopath is always saying that when he sees a lot of people through the through the week various injuries like maybe a shoulder a bit of an elbow knee but the spine ones are the ones that take the most time to, to heal and to fix. And a simple thing can set them back. I could sneeze wrong and it'll set my back. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't want to end up with a bad back. I mean, shoulder injuries are a pain. I've still got, I've got a bit of an impingement in my shoulder. But it doesn't impact me as much as my, as my back does. So I would try and encourage people to try and get into the habit of doing the prehab so that's doing the exercises to support the spine. It'll help with in everything, everything in your life. But then also try and reduce the amount of stresses that you put through the spine. When you're plugging the hoover in at the wall, make sure you're squatting down to plug the hoover in. Um, that's why I changed my hoover to a handheld one, so I don't have to keep doing that. So um, the less you can aggravate your back, the better it would be. So if you you are out in the field on a on a shoot and you're picking up lots of arrows because you're a longbow person are you recommending sort of bending down on one knee don't worry about getting a dirty knee yeah i mean i don't, I don't think longbow archers are concerned about their appearance so much i would never say that i can't give you a, a one-size-fits-all answer there it, it really is down to your personal preference you might come into a squat and drop down onto one knee that's going to make sure that your spine stays okay you might squat you could do that it's it's whatever feels comfortable for you as long as you're not rounding through through the back that's that's what what we want really 
Uh, I think when I did it, it was mainly squats. And the way I looked at it is that squats are really good for the body. I can do them whilst I'm doing my archery. So I'm doing a sport, which I love. I get to do an extra extra exercise that supports my spine whilst I'm doing my sport. It's like free rehab, really, if, if you like. And you're getting your steps in. Oh, definitely get your steps in, yeah. I mean, the thing about archery is that, and I told my, my um, osteopath that I wanted to get back into it, you know, he encourages it in terms of an activity, but it's not a sporty sport, you know, you're not getting hot and sweaty. I mean, you are on a hot day, but it's it's not going to sort of give you the same physical benefits as doing another activity might. So, you, but you would recommend it to people that suffer from back problems. You would recommend it as a sport to generally join. Uh, I would encourage archery because to, for most people, because as I said before, it's it is an activity, and people generally at the moment aren't active. There's a big difference between exercise and activity. Um, and what I mean by that is exercise could be somebody who goes to the gym. They go to the gym once a day for an hour and they spend half an hour doing some cardio, half an hour doing some strength training, and they go home. But from six o'clock, six o'clock in the morning to the time they go to the gym, they're sat down in an office, getting up for the occasional brew and going to the toilet. They go to the gym for an hour, they come home, sit, sit down in front of the television. So they're thinking they're doing an hour a day at the gym, that's really good. But then you've got somebody who might, again, jobs are different, so it depends on your job, but they'll be constantly active through the day. They might walk to work, they might take the stairs, you know, they might go for a walk at lunchtime and then they'll walk home, then they'll go to the gym and they might come home and do something else. So there's a big push at the moment. I think the NHS is obviously trying to, to push it forward is that there's a, a way of being active consistently throughout the day rather than just doing exercise yeah not just the government guidelines of 20 minutes a day no um so the more active you can be the better it is if you go and do a, a week if you go and do the Lancashire championships that was two two days of shooting so you're not building what what people would consider mirror muscles because that's not what actually is it's it's more of the, the stabilizing muscles really than it's mirror muscles the things that look good in the gym, you know, like if you look in the mirror, oh, look how big I am. You know, archery is not really for, for those kinds of muscles, really. It's more of a more of a resistance sport, really, than uh, than sort of massive strength, strength gains, I guess. But you're being consistently active through the whole day. You're not just sat down. I mean, when I was doing archery, you know, for competing, because I was still relatively new to getting used to my back I would never never sit down the whole day I wouldn't sit down even when I wasn't shooting I'd stand up uh, mainly because if I sit down too long and then stand up my back gets stiff so I would I would just stand up and walk around a little bit so at the end of a break period would you do another warm-up session um no unless it was very cold I wouldn't no there is something to be said about thinking about your nutrition and especially your hydration competition. So what would you eat and drink? I suppose in a way there's there's a right way to answer this and, and, a, and a wrong way. Do the right way and then do Samantha's um, way. Um, well, the, the, the right, if you want to be strict about it and if you want to try and achieve your best, first of all, you need to find stuff that you like to eat. I don't think eating stuff in your life that you don't generally like, I mean, it's just miserable. There are ways around things, do you know what I mean? But if you wanted to be sort of more consistent and more balanced in your shooting, then um, one of the best things I ever learned to eat was um, milk roll by Warburton's. Warburton's milk roll. Warburton's Blackpool milk roll, as it used to be known, but they're taking the Blackpool off for some reason. Um, so that butter, not spread, butter. Butter is a 
big thing of mine. What about the saturates in butter compared to margarine, compared to flora? Yeah, I can make butter in my kitchen. I can't make flora in my kitchen. You know, it's, it's a couple of ingredients. Women especially need fats for their health, creates hormones and things like that. So the fats are important. We also need it as, as a population to come away from processed food. I know there's been a big push in January this year to go vegan which is great for the environment. When you see all the adverts for vegan burgers and sausages, things like that, they're still processed food. It's still fast food, isn't it? It's still still not the best for you. I mean, it's better, I suppose, from an environmental point of view to a degree, but it's still not the best for you. I mean, I'm talking as a 10-year vegetarian. I'm not a vegetarian now, but I was for 10 years. So I'm not being a you know carnivore about it, but um, I think people need to be aware of there's some things that you should try and limit and some things that you shouldn't. So butter for me, I would happily have that on your on your Blackpool milk roll. On my Blackpool milk roll with some seedless raspberry jam. That was my that was my thing, cut up into quarters. So it was literally a mouthful at a time. So you got carbs, fats, and sh- sugars in there. Uh, well, you've got yeah, you've got your carbs are essentially a sugar. So if you think about it, you've got you've got the fat. I mean, you can see you could take the butter out if you really wanted to, but. Again, my personal preference is I wanted the butter. I like butter. I'll have butter. You could take that out if you wanted to. So the jam gives you the short-chain carbohydrates, so they'll be released into the bloodstream quicker, providing energy, but the, the, the bread takes a bit longer. So that's what um, I would eat. I would also sometimes have... I used Because when I was uh, shooting, I was a vegetarian. I'd have some of the corn cocktail sausages for a bit of a protein hit again it's still a processed food you've got to watch the salt a little bit just be aware of it and then also hydrate which is especially important to join a hot hot soup hot shoot just lots of fresh water um again it's personal preference i would always go with water myself i might take maybe a couple bottles of water and a bottle of diet coke just for a bit what i like to do is have if i was having a lunch I'd like to have my Diet Coke, but through the day I'd have I'd have water. Um, obviously, you do need to consider, you know, bathroom breaks. You don't want to be holding on to that for a long time. You need to make sure that you can empty your bladder out if you can do. Yeah, you're aiming for the goal, then you, your bladder say, you want to go. best way to do it, I always found, is if you're shooting on first detail, because I was always quite a quick shooter at archery. I'd shoot through my arrows quite quickly. In that two minutes, I'd be done in 45 seconds. Strip off everything. Not literally closed. Just just get rid of the bow, get rid of the quiver, straight to the clubhouse. We, and you come back out, the second detail would be shooting, and you'd probably be out by the time they were going to get to go and collect. That's what I used to do, used to time it, so that I, I would go for a wee after this end. That's a good tip. Yeah. Always make sure you're on first detail. Yeah. So that, that was my that was one of my go-to meals, really. Um, but the key thing was with that is that you eat continuously. You don't sort of have a, a lunch. You know, you have um, you have that throughout the shoot. Little and often. Yeah. I mean, it's boring because when you get to the break, you've got nothing to eat. But it's far better than having like, you know, like a pie or a sausage butty or something. Because you just look, you know, you're just giving yourself a blood sugar crash halfway through the, the end, you know, the afternoon, the afternoon if you shoot perhaps and you don't feel so good and... Um, I remember when we went to the um, to the Masters and I was with um, a couple of, well, they were all lumbar watchers, so um, can I say people's names? If you want to, um, we'll send them a link in an email. So I was shooting with Jude, Jude Lane, um, Hamish Freeman and, oh my God, Dale. What's Dale's last name? Smith. He's not got that name on his, uh, I'll say it again. I was shooting with Jude and Hamish and, uh, oh my God, I've got I've just said, Dale, 
I was shooting with Jude and Hamish and Dale. Um, they were always quite competitive longbow archers. There's quite a big big rivalry there between Hamish and Dale, uh, which I think probably goes back years. Um, and we all travelled down together to go to the Masters, because that was the first year I'd ever, ever, ever qualified for it. First time I've ever been on anything that designated me as an athlete, which I thought was hilarious because I'm not an athlete. And I actually had to enter the, do the, en- the entry for that on my works computer. And I sat there with like two bags of crisps and chocolate bars. And I just thought that was really funny. So we all decided to go down the night before for the shoe and then we'd come home. And we went out for our tea, like to, I think it was the, the pub where the part of the hotel where we were. And I think we must have had three courses. It was way too much food. The next day I just felt awful. You know, I'd had far too much food and... It just wasn't good. I still had a good time at the shoot. But you didn't want to shoot. But no, I wasn't keen. Luckily, it wasn't too hot that day, but, oh, God, it could have been so bad. So, yeah, that that's another factor, really, is to, you know, like, don't overdo it the night before. Don't have a massive breakfast. Something It's, it's quite traditional to have a bacon butty at the uh, shoot. And I would never say, oh, you really shouldn't be doing that, if that makes you happy. If you look forward to that, at the end of the week, you're going to an archery shoot, you're going to get some cake and you have a bacon butter, maybe even two, that's fine. You could always just have a half and have the other half at the break. Yeah, I, mean, I, can, I can only sort of tell you that like, if you want to sort of take it a bit more seriously, find the energy food that's right for you. Uh, I know that one of the girls at, uh, at the Masters, she was eating, she was a bear archer, I think she was like the... She was maybe second in the country. She was like really, really good. And she was having... Carrot sticks and peanut butter. Do you know her name? No. <laughs> I, could, okay. I could find out. No, I've got no, the paperwork with it on. She's actually Canadian by birth, but she's, um, she's a psychologist by profession. But yeah, so that was her thing, you know, carrots and peanut butter, which seemed like a waste of peanut butter to me. But that, again, from a nutrition point of view, it's not a bad idea. Sugars, bit of fat, bit of protein. It's pretty good, really. So you've given me the... Was that the right answer? What was your... What's your... The wrong, the wrong right answer is whatever you want. If you want to go and have a McDonald's, that's fine. You want to have three cans of Monsters, it's not great, that's fine. But I think... Isn't there some longbows that drink alcohol? They can have mead at certain shoots. It's a legal allowance, I think. Um, so I, I, I'm not going to preach to people how to eat. That's up to you. Everyone knows how to eat. Everyone knows what's good and bad for you now. I don't think you can really say that, oh, I didn't know that was bad for me. You do know. You know what you eat. And if you're honest with yourself, then you can realise, am I going to continue on like this or not? I found out recently I cannot tolerate white bread. That lovely milk roll that I loved for so long... No, if I have that now, I just feel ugh, awful. But whatever makes you comfortable, really, at the end of the day. So we've done this long weekend of archery. We've we've kept kept ourselves well fed, and we've done all the warm ups. What about cool downs? Um, I would probably stretch a little, especially as you get old. You want to make sure that you sort of giving the muscles time to recover. Make sure that you're hydrating enough. That basically flushes any toxins out of the muscles that might build up over time. Lactic um, acid. Lactic acid, yeah, that's what that's one. There are some others that I forget the name of. But basically, I mean, people do generally don't drink enough water, so you should do. Uh, especially on hot days when you've got, uh, you know, like a, a, a hot shoot, make sure you wear sun cream. A number of arches I've seen that are so heavily burnt. Because you don't realise it and it's too late. Don't forget your ears. You're fair-skinned. Yeah, I have to wear a hat. I can't not wear a hat. It'll just go straight through and onto my scalp and then it'll burn me. What's your favourite hat? Baseball cap or bucket hat? Or I had a bucket cap. 
Yeah, mine was actually a Tilly hat, which I'm not sure where, where you can get them now, but they're um, I think they're an American brand or maybe Australian. And they have like a special pocket at the top where you can put like um, some money in and things like that. But it's one, it's a bucket hat. So you can, I used to have to snap the brim back and then I'd flip it back forward when I wasn't shooting. So I wear glasses. So it helped a little bit with the rain. Um, oh, have we got a picture of you so that we can use it in the icon? Uh, in your arch? In my hat. With, there with will your, be somewhere. Your longbow brace and your tilly hat. The, I, I don't know. I don't think I've got the tilly hat anymore. I don't think so anyway. I couldn't wear a baseball cap because the brim would get in the way. And I think a lot of people prefer the old bucket hat. And we are from Manchester at the end of the day, so that fits. We've got to the point where you're a really good competitor and you're enjoying it and and the archery's helped with your recovery. Do you feel as though you've achieved all you've wanted with archery? Um, I think if it is, if you don't ask me that question when I kind of had to stop because I couldn't do the practice anymore, I would say, yeah, I mean... In terms of classification, there's nowhere else I could have gone. There's always the option of um, maybe getting a higher ranking and maybe getting a couple of national records. But I think it became apparent at the Masters that although I was good, the good people were way beyond me. And I'm not even talking 10 points. I'm talking nearly 100 points difference. Um, And they were people that... They were all people that used the weight on the bow. I think a couple of them had like active sponsorships as well, so that maybe helped them as well. Um, I've never tam- never sort of tried with the weight on the bow. Don't use a bow sling, never have. So that would be something I'd like to try to see whether it helps me, if it makes a difference. I don't think you should really have the idea that things will definitely help you. It might help, it might not. It just might suit, it might not. I might find that it doesn't help me at all. Uh, I would also like to, once I am physically strong enough to, and I think this is a crucial point that people don't realise, when my shoulders are strong enough, I would like to increase the poundage because that'll just give me an easier ride getting the distance. Um, how, how will you know when your shoulders are strong enough? The way that I... Now I've been through competition and I've been being a competitive archer and doing the full 12 dozen rounds at competitions, you know, sometimes twice a weekend. Once I was getting towards the end of an outdoor season, the bow that I was using didn't seem like it was anything. It was fine. There was no problem me pulling that. I mean, 28 pounds, people were like, that's nothing anyway. But to me, that was enough. So I think what I would, if I was to train fully again, I would like to probably stick with my original bow for a couple of months until I get to the point where I'm training consistently and it doesn't feel like it's a stretch. And then I would go to my other bow and then maybe I probably do a couple of months where I do half a session with the old bow, half with the new, uh, because it would be a couple of pounds increase. I don't think I'd want to go above maybe 32, maybe 34. And so, how how quickly would you go from 28 to 34? Would you be quite incremental there or would you just go just straight up to it? You've got to listen to yourself. You've got to listen to your body. Sharp pains when you're exercising, no. You, you need to slow down. That's with any exercise. The structure of the shoulder is quite complex. It's probably one of the most complex joints. It's not necessarily... When you think about the um, the hip socket, it is a socket. You've got a ball and a cup that basically fit together. And I think people think because the range of motion in a shoulder is similar to a hip, it's a similar kind of joint, and it's really not. It's more a collection of bones and then muscles and ligaments that wrap and create the cup of the of the muscle of the shoulder. Yeah, it's not the obvious traps and deltoids, is it? No, it's the it's, in- there's lots of supraspinatus is like one of the most is one of the uh, upper shoulder muscles, the teres major underneath on on the back. 
So there's a lot of muscles that make up that capsule. I think it's something that a lot of people get injuries for from growing up too quickly because it takes a lot of compression through the through that shoulder. Um, I mean, I actually do have an impingement already and I have had throughout my archery career, but because with archery uh, and my poundage was quite low, it never really affected me too much. Uh, it does affect me a little bit now. It's a bit irritating. But apart from that, I never had any injuries. But that would be an area to make sure that it's it's safe to increase. So you might be talking a couple of months. Um, so would you know at the end of a full shoot that you've done a full shoot? Would you be aching in your shoulders? And... Um, when I was competing, I would get the aching between the shoulder blades. So that's your rhomboids and your trapezius that are doing the work. Not really, I wouldn't really get any pain anywhere else. It'd just be a general ache, really. But when I was training the most, that was when um, my left pectoral muscle was quite trained i suppose or quite uh, toned because obviously that's taking the compressive force of, of the bow and probably some of my right arm is probably a bit it's a very asymmetric sport so you don't really have a lot of symmetry with it it was more that it was easy if it starts to feel easy you're not having to shake when you're getting at full you know if you could hold if you can hold a drawn bow like they do in the movies where they hold it for like five minutes before they take a shot if you can do that with a bow you're probably strong enough for it so i think once i'd be able to get up to a higher poundage I'd want to see whether that made me more accurate at distance. Not bothered about the shorter distances. It's that doesn't matter for shorter distances. It's the longer distance. If I can, if I could aim on a target rather than up in the air or down into the grass, that would be a nice thing to experiment with. Um, my husband who did do a beginner's course at, at, at Rochdale as well. Um, he's obviously got a bow now as well. And we did come for a time, but then jobs get in the way and life gets in the way. So he wanted to do more string walking. So his, his is a bear bow set up as well. And he was finding string walking was, was working for him. And I've toyed with it briefly very early on but then not needed to because i was getting the enough consistency and accuracy through gap shooting and i was obviously getting the results so i didn't need to change it so i'd like to experiment a little bit with string walking to see whether that would help me get a more consistent sight mark what what distances are we talking here 50 70 100 yards um i've shot i've shot a york in fact one of my grandmaster bowman scores was shooting a, a york round so i mean when i was shooting 80 yards i'd be you know way way high up all of my big scores came from shooting at asherton bowman which for some reason people say is a bad place to shoot it's got a lot of swirly wind but i i don't know i never really had an issue with it and maybe I was just lucky with the weather, I don't know. But when I was shooting, if anybody knows, I should turn... With the motorway embankment. Yeah, so you've got the motorway behind, you've got the trees. So I was way up above the trees. That's where I was aiming at 100 yards. That's where I had to. And that was with the ACEs as well. So I'd like to see the combination of the string walking and the poundage with the ACEs and see what happens then. But I know in my, in my heart of hearts, I need to do, I would need to train like I was training to know whether there was a difference on it. Oh, and then trying the weight as well. And your passion's still there for bearbow. You've not mentioned, oh, I'd rather like to try XRX. No, I don't know why that is. I've never really, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a longbow and I've still got a longbow. I liked it, but I found it... So I don't know whether people have gone between sort of the more uh, technical bows to a long bow, but it feels very different. It's a lot harsher a shoot than than, than other, other bow types, and um, that took a bit of getting used to. And I think sometimes, especially if you are competitive, if you're not getting the results, it kind of puts you off a little bit as well. So again, that's, a, that's another challenge to try and get to. 
But one of the one of the main reasons I'd ever get back into archery is from the social side of things because it was just so much fun. You know, we had a, everyone had a laugh. You know, we had some, I've had some really good memories of shoots that have been. Um, you know, I've been. I mean, we went to a, a pie and pea shoot in Yorkshire once, and it was so cold. It was horrific, and it was. Um, I think they started at like seven o'clock at night in Yorkshire somewhere in a rugby field. I can't remember whereabouts it was now, but a few of us went from Rochdale and you start off and everyone's happy and you know like joking around and then about halfway through everyone's just silent just trudging up and down covered in mud and freezing freezing cold and it was so cold that you because I can't shoot with a glove on and people generally can't can they so it matter of trying to take all the gloves off quickly shooting and putting the gloves back on it was so cold but then we got a pie at the end of it and as a northerner, that's like the best thing. Was it? Was it Holland's? No, I think it was a homemade one. Oh, really? So I'm a, I'm a big foodie. So any shoots that have like food that's good, I that's one of the biggest things that I love that about archery. Like uh, at uh, at Eccles, they did a really good chili con carne. That was amazing. You know the bacon butties are always good. I went to a shoot once and I can't remember whereabouts it was. I think it was in Cheshire somewhere. And um, I said to the lady, like, oh, um, I was vegetarian at the time. What have you got for vegetarians for breakfast? Um, I think I must have not had time for breakfast or something. And she sort of looked at everything and said, um, bread. And I was like, oh, okay then, it's all right, it don't matter, it's fine. We've got this Blackpool milk roll. Yeah, well, no, I didn't even have that. So, you know, there's, there's things about that. And like the whole experience of going to the Masters was really weird as well. Like this, the entering for it, saying that you're an athlete and you're not an athlete, you just do archery you know it's a bit weird and I'd not been to the Lillishaw before ever and look those with the three people that I had so they'd been before a few times I think and so we'd had like a really cracking night the night before and when we were having our dessert order taken like they said like what what do you want for your dessert and they had like apple apple betty is it apple caramel betty it's like a apple pie with a crumble top and then she said what do you want with it do you want ice cream or cream and I said I want as much custard as you can fit into the bowl so that you can't see the apple pie and so I had that that's why I probably why I felt so bad afterwards and then you know that that morning we getting up early because we've got to get set up and find where we're shooting from and it was such an anticlimax at Lilla Show it was, I was like is this it and I thought this is like surely the biggest shoot of the archery calendar and I was expecting like banners and like you know like more things and there was just nothing <laughs> yeah I, I was just I, I could not believe the difference between a local shoot and and the the masters it was just completely different so i think they had one little tiny kiosk that had like really crappy sandwiches and i was like this is it this is what it's meant to be i was so disappointed i mean i mean luckily i was with the people that i was and that made it the people always make the shoots archery regardless of any outcomes that you have and luckily i was with you know, people that I really liked and, you know, knew really well, made some new friends whilst I was there. But, yeah, that was a real letdown. So the cakes at shoots are always very important. You have to assess that situation before you make any decisions and make sure I'm going to have that cake later. And I think once you get into the competitive circuit, you know where it's going to be good. So you yeah. don't recommend Lily Shaw? Um, I just I just thought it would be better. I just thought, oh, it's actually where actually GB lives, this, you know, the whole headquarters, and it was just it was just disappointing in a way. I thought there'd be, like, more to it. 
I was just quite disappointed, you know, compared to other shoots that I'd been to. I wonder if they're going to be listening to this and they might say, oh, we'll need to add something. I just, I, I was disappointed and surprised because it's not like it was cheap either to enter. You know, it's far more expensive than any other shoot that I'd been been on. So I don't know, I don't know whether they do do things differently, but I just thought, well, it, you know, if you're talking about the masses of another sport, it's a big occasion, but there was just none of that. And that, I can't even blame COVID because he's like a long time ago now. So I don't know whether things have changed. I really hope that they do because, you know, the people that are there, yes, they might have some natural talent, but they're really going to, they'll have put the work in. They really will have worked really hard for that. There'll have been people that have been at that shoot that have gotten two of the classifications that they need for a master's classification. And then they'll have been panicking, thinking, I need to try and get this third one. Where can I shoot? Because I've driven down to Oxford before now for a shoot, chasing the classification. So, you know, people have really put the time in and effort in and then to get there and to get a wilted cheese sandwich, it's just, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's just it's just not the same. It's just it's just not what I expected, I suppose. And yeah, and that's the effort the competitors put in, the effort the volunteers put in as well. They, yeah. they, they go really right for it. That's great, Sam. So let's move on now. Let's talk about Pilates. Why Pilates? And and then we can also then talk about your business, your company called Remedy Pilates. Yeah. So the reason why I am now a Pilates instructor is that um, it was fundamental part of my recovery from having an operation. So I needed something to improve my mobility and strength, a um, bit of balance in there as well. So that with the archery is what helped me learn to sort of move and not be afraid of moving because you do worry that, you know, you're going to end up in a similar situation that you've just come out of. So, you know, you try and find things that are exercise or activity that don't feel like it. Well, what, what is Pilates? Is it yoga? Is it, is it, no. Are you very supple? And... I'm not very supple. I'm not the bendiest person. I think it's a misconception that you have to be bendy for things like that. Um, it's a way to increase your bendiness or flexibility, but you don't have to already have that. And some people perhaps never will. It depends, again, on their bodies, what they're what they're capable of. Um, it was actually invented in the 40s um, by a man called Joseph Pilates, and he devised 34 exercises. And what they are designed for predominantly were dancers or dancers. And, um, dancers, dancers. darling. Uh, and they are, you know, the people that when you see ballet dancers and other dancers, they spend a lot of time with the back arched back, and that's called going into extension. The opposite would be if you were leaning forward, that's going into flexion. <clears throat> so a lot of the 34 exercises are to help people that spend a lot of time arched backwards because that becomes a weak area for them. So that's what he, he devised the 34 exercises for. If you ever look on YouTube, at if you try and find Joseph Pilates, Joseph Pilates exercises and you find a video of him doing them, it's brutal to watch. You know, think like the uh, ballerinas of Russia being stretched. It's that kind of, that looks like it hurts. But that's what he devised in the, in the 40s. It's been taken into different degrees and areas the, by other people as time has gone on. Um, so there's a... It's evolved. It's evolved. And I think a lot of that comes down to people having more knowledge of anatomy, physiology, biomechanics, things like that. And they can put more more of the science behind the movements. So those movements are still important to, to, to know about, but it's almost like it's the flip side of, of, of those exercises that are used more now. So rather than trying to help people that spend a lot of time in extension... 
Um, modern Pilates, I think, more has a more of an emphasis on helping people that spend a lot of time in flexion. So that's your people that are sat down all day, you know, sat down, stumped in front of the sofas, because your back is just constantly in flexion. Unfortunately, from a anatomy point of view if you spend a lot of time in flexion the back part of the back so if you were to look at the body from the back that's the the bit that's being flexed forward that's already a weak point because the tendons of the back part of the vertebrae that go up up the spine aren't as strong as the ones at the front that's why when a disc herniates it's going to go back that way and get a nerve so that's um, that's what causes a lot of people problems so pilates exercises now predominantly looking mainly a few areas so you've got mobility so making sure people either increase or maintain their range of movement in their muscles and joints that's different for everyone and sometimes it'll help improve it sometimes it's just keeping it on an even keel so it doesn't end up becoming too restrictive so there's mobility balancing is in there which is good for everyone especially the older generations from a falls prevent prevention point of view um there's also strength gets put in there as well because you are doing things to strengthen and you also have something called proprioception and that's basically your your innate knowledge of where your limbs are in space um so some people don't really have an understanding of if you say to someone take your arm up to shoulder height they'll take it way past the rear and up to the ceiling, but they think their their arms are at shoulder height. So uh, it's a funny one. And then one of the biggest principles that they have is, is the core. Core engagement is really, really important in Pilates and we do lots of exercise that strengthen the core. And remember, that's the cylinder, not just the front. So we do lots of exercise around that. And then there's just control and um, uh, precision of movement as well. So it's anything really to do with, with movement and things to make it easier and more stable, things like that. Because it sounds hard work, Pilates. Um, I can make it. I can make someone wince and shake and curse me if I wanted to. I can also make it nice and gentle. We'll have a nice bit of mobility a little bit of strengthening. So you, I can make it as, as hard or light as I want to be. I generally go off what people want to do. So I'll, at the end of a class, I'll say, how sh- how about we try a bit of this next week? And they'll give an opinion. So will co- people come away glowing or sweating? Uh, people generally come away feeling less pain, feeling a bit more flexible, feeling though you're, you've got less tension in legs. So we do a lot, a lot of stretching in towards the end of a class. Um, so the way that I tend to have my classes is that we'll do a warm up, we'll get all the major areas of the body warmed up, starting from the head all the way down to the feet. And then we'll do a little bit of stand up work. And then we come down to the mat. And what I normally do is um, exercises in Pilates have different start positions. So it might be that you lie on your back, you're in all fours, you're on the side. You lay flat on the on the floor, face ground, or you're standing. You can do it sat down for some exercises as well. So what I normally try and do is do a bit of stand-up stuff, warm up, get people on the mat, on the back. We do some exercises on the back, and we go onto one side, then onto the front, then onto the other side, then back onto the back, and then back to standing, because that means that people aren't moving up and down as much, which isn't great on the body. This week, I've just done two classes that have had a focus on the glutes and the bum, and then the other two have been more on the core. So I can make people do certain exercises where they really will feel it in terms of a muscle burn. So, so if someone comes to you and they say, Sam, I work all day, I'm sat down, I don't move. I've, I've tried jogging once a week or going to the gym. 
and it's not working for me, I'm getting pain and I've got an archery competition coming up, you would say to them, come to me and I can do this for you. Yeah, if I get people that come to see me as an individual, yes, Pilates is my qualification in terms of um, if you were looking at a personal trainer, somebody might have a personal training qualification. I have a Matt Pilates qualification, but I also have an exercise referral qualification and a lower back pain specific one as well. And what that means is that I'm already looking at people with special, or not special, they call them special populations in the clinical world. So people that already have an issue that's known. So it's not just somebody that's maybe just doing normal exercises anyway. So it's people that have generally got, or been told that they've got a bad back um, for whatever reason that might be. So what I would, what I do with my one-to-one people is that we have a big long chat for an hour. There's a couple of standard medical questionnaires that I have to go through and we just have a chat and I'll say, what kind of things do you find difficult? What kind of things cause you pain? What kind of things do you avoid? Things like that. So we just have a chat and I'll try and make it as broad ranging as possible. How do you sleep? How do you feel after you've slept? You know, like what's your chair like at work? What car do you drive? You know, things like that. You know, it's it's really getting down to the nitty gritty of everyone's individual um, and then I try and identify the areas that we need to work on. So I can do that from just a static assessment of the posture, also a dynamic assessment of a posture. So that's something that I will check what your posture is like when you're walking, doing a squat, balancing on one leg. That gives an indication on when you might where you might have some dysfunction. And then I would say, right, these are the areas that I think we need to work on. And then if you work on those areas, they would help in any sport. They'd help you with your jogging. So if you're finding jogging painful at the moment, if you were to identify what you need to strengthen, you take a couple of weeks to strengthen them, bearing in mind that uh, you don't get changes in, the, in your body for, you know, it doesn't change overnight. You have to consistently do something for several weeks before it starts taking effect. Uh, but there are some things that you can, that pretty much everyone needs to work on, primarily being your core and your bum area, pretty much most, I think, I don't know whether it's a, a, a Eastern, well, whether it's a European thing or something, but I get people referred to me from the osteopath and it's always pretty much a similar story. Core and bum. Core and bum. Yeah, I had gluteal amnesia myself. So basically, um, my osteopath one day when I went to see him, he said, squeeze your bum. And I did, but nothing happened because there was just nothing there. It wasn't being switched on. It was other muscles that were trying to do it in the, you know, the other way around. So there are certain exercises that you can do to strengthen those muscles, but you have to be aware that everyone isn't the same in terms of ability. Somebody could come to me with back problems, And they wouldn't stiffness. know that they've got deficiencies anywhere? Uh, no, they wouldn't know. They don't know. No one's told them. Because if you go to a doctor and say, I've got back pain, they'll give you some drugs. Because that's what the NHS can, that's what they, that's almost the limit of what they can do. The NHS is, is fantastic and I would never knock it. And it is, it's an incredible thing, but there's a limit to what it can do. I don't think, I think it, if it, if it could do, I'm talking about it like a natural person, but if it could, it would spend more on prehab. Uh, they're trying to stay people away from operations because they're not necessarily effective. So people get to they'd send people through to pain management and then, Within pain management programs, there are things that will suit some people and not others. So you, you recommend that they perhaps be more preemptive. Um, you do have to. It's not. It's, it's funny because you, you shouldn't be thinking about it in terms of a prehab is is important in that it, it's preventing the worsening of a condition or a symptom. 
So it's not necessarily to say that if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll never have this. Unfortunately, you can do everything right in life and still end up with a back problem or a knee problem. It's, there's no real, you know, I think a lot of people who don't have back pain and back problems, when people, oh, I've got a bad back, yeah, it's really sore. And there's a difference between a bad back and then there's a really bad back. And more often than not, the people that have the really bad backs, they don't talk about it because it's 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 constant with them. And they just change their life because their life yeah. revolves around it. Yeah. So it's limiting. Yeah. There are people that know they have a bad back, know what they should do, but don't seem to be able to consistently do what they need to. Um, I've got one lady who's like determined that she will get better and she, she almost overdoes it really but if you can be preemptive in terms of making sure that you've got a stable spine everything's like being all the muscles are being recruited at the same time you're not ending up with an imbalance like with the people that train for the pub when they've got the imbalance between upper and lower body you know the the, the training both sides especially for women things like doing weight-bearing exercises when you're in your 20s will prevent your risk of developing osteoporosis so anything that loads the the the, the legs and the and well any, not all them all the bones really in the spine because it's any any bone can be affected by osteoporosis. So it's sort of future proofing your body really, and you can take that down to you know maintaining a healthy weight. Obviously that's important. Trying to not be overwhelmed with stress. I'm not saying anything groundbreaking here. This is all stuff that's known. But it's getting through to the younger generation, that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, one of the greatest things that's that's happened in the last couple, like, five years is there's been the over sort of emphasis on people's bums. And everyone's got to have this particular kind of bum. Kardashian bum. Yeah, I guess. Um, But that's actually really good because that's a good area to have strong. You know, you want to make sure that area is strong. But you also need to have a bit on the on the front as well, and the, and the legs as well. So, but it's it's actually, you know, those those girls that spend a lot of time doing the squats, um, yeah, they can probably even out and do a bit of other areas as well. But they're actually doing better than I was doing when I was their age. I wasn't doing any squats, you know, in my twenties. That you didn't, you know, that bum culture wasn't there. So that is actually quite a good thing. So I think people are, um, especially the younger generation, they're a bit more switched on. It'll just be unfortunate if it's just fashion, though, that won't it? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there is that. But I think I think now there's a lot more backup in terms of the science behind why you do things rather than just for aesthetics. It, I think people are more aware of what they can and can't do for the bodies and, you know, trying to use the body to heal itself. Um, there's a Canadian doctor who's really um, big in the back pain world and he prescribes a set of three exercises which are Pilates based and also walking. So walking's a great balm for your back. It's free, doesn't take anything. Three lots of 10 minutes a day, a decent pace, don't dwaddle. Get a dog. Get a dog, yeah. So a dog and a pooper scooper. Uh, yeah, I guess so. But, I mean, but if you think about it, you could have... If you've got a big dog like you've got, if that's going to pull forward, that's going to really twist you one way. So you know you have to try and be careful, try and maintain that, like maybe the that keep the lead in the middle of the body. It's very difficult. Um, in the um, in one of the Canadian doctors' um, books called uh, Stuart McGill, if you want to look him up, the back mechanic is his one of his principal book. Um, he talks about the best way of opening a door, best way to sneeze for your lower back. So there are lots of things to consider. 
in your health. And if you can sort of sneeze correctly, lift correctly, exercise correctly and strengthen the right areas, then you're doing as much as you can to prevent yourself having an injury or pain in the future. But you can do everything right and you can still end up, end up in a bad way. So archery is great for that because it's active. You're being active, you're moving around. Those those joints are getting oiled each time that you move. When you draw, you're putting some stress through the bones, whether you draw weights, you know, because you're coming through whichever is your bow arm. I think if you even look at archaeological finds, they show you that the forearms of archers is significantly stronger than other people or the opposite forearms. So it definitely has a good impact on health um but you still need to do things like a little bit of cardio perhaps a bit more flexibility and those have places in within archery training if you want them to as well i'm sensing you've got as much passion for pilates and than you you did for archery i would say so because i know that it works it's not like i've just come out of you know sixth form i've done a personal training qualification and then i've gone on to be a personal trainer in a gym i've had a bad back i've been through you know, really bad chronic pain. And I've gone through the d- despair and the sort of frustration that you have with it. And you just, especially at a, at a young age, so I had my first operation at 30 odd years old, which is quite young for that kind of operation, really. So um, I've been through all that, but I know that the Pilates work and I, I know that it, it helps and I know that the, the archery helped me. I mean, that helped in terms of a social context as well because I was single, you know, I didn't really see a lot of people outside of work because you went out at the weekend. So there was that social aspect of it. You've got people from different ages and generations in archery, so you really get to sort of um, feed off other people and learn about life and what they did. And, you know, it's just a it's just a way of being more socially included in your, in your community, really. In a lot of ways, it is, it is such a good sport because it's everyone can do it regardless of any kind of disability you only have to look at the paralympians to see that uh, it's very social just have some great people people generally always want to help you and things like that the shoots are always great fun if you get a an award or a qualification uh, classification or you get a medal you know it's great but sometimes you just go along and you just have a great time you know i've been to halloween shoots that have been great fun and you know, it's just a just it's just a community. I think that's the biggest thing. It's a it's a community, and it, it allows you to be active. And people need the community and activity in their lives. Um, so that's why I'm passionate about um, about archery for Pilates. I know that it helps treat people's dysfunctions in muscles and joints, and it helps you reduce the pain that you have. And I know that because I've done it. I've let myself slip backwards and then got it back again. Unfortunately, um, when you get to a point when you have bits of dysfunction and maybe you have had an operation for whatever kind of thing, sometimes you get given physio exercises at the end. And my cousin got given some once, I think for his knee. I think he's a few years older than me. So he went to the physio. Physio gave him some exercises and he said to the physio, how long do I do these exercises for? And he's like, that's just what you do now. So you don't do Pilates once, you know, once a week for the rest of your life. You do try and build up on it and try and do it at home. And you do need to be aware that for some people, well, actually, no, for all people, you should be doing these exercises. For some people, it's more important to do them regularly because it means that the back is supported and you're getting stronger. So if, if someone um, has got an injury, I mean, you mentioned that you do um, private tuition. Do you, do you run classes as well? Uh, yeah, I do classes um, 
four times a week uh, in the Rochdale area. They're generally full body. I do have a beginner's class and a mixed ability class. Uh, but to be honest, you could go to either class uh, and you'd be able to do it for any ability. Is this both men and women and all ages? Uh, I would encourage, obviously, any, I think I think my insurance only covers adults. So you'd have to be over 18. Anybody can come unless you have been specifically told by a clinician that you can't exercise. Um, so that's a bit of an exercise referral thing. Anything else uh, I would generally pick up on with the um, health uh, questionnaire but generally people that have comorbidities know about them already you know they know what they can and can't do you know someone's known they've had a hip, a hip replacement so they know what they, what kind of movements they can and can't do so once you've identified those areas i'll say to everyone you know we'll do this exercise next but if you've got a lower back you know keep a foot on the floor don't take the arm as wide you know things like really i don't sort of do an exercise and expect everyone to do that exercise. It's that version of that exercise, whatever suits you. It's not a competitive sport in any way. You do hope that you do improve over time. Um, unfortunately, some people won't because they're just they they have a condition that means that they can't. But they need to come regularly to a class to achieve the flexibility and get rid of the stiffness and reduce the pain, things like that. How long do classes last? Um, mine are about an hour. So we do a nice warm up, main session with some decent exercises in, and then uh, a cool down at the end. As I said, sometimes I'll do a specialised one where I might focus on a particular area, maybe use a different piece of Pilates equipment. Um, next week, I think I might do a class where I use um, it's kind of like a squidgy massage ball, and we'll use that under the feet to get rid of any sort of tension in the feet. We can use them a bit under the shoulder blades, as well as doing some other exercises as well. Previously, I've used the booty bands that people use in the gym. Um, so they're based on Pilates moves, but sometimes you do get a little bit of an intensive section. Um, some people a few weeks ago said that they're spending a lot of time working from home, so they're punched forward you know, in front of a computer for hours. And so somebody happened to mention that, that that was an issue that they had. So we did some exercises that help strengthen and stretch the upper body to make sure that they don't have the aches and pains. And immediately after we'd done the stretching, people felt better. But it's just an education thing to find out, you know, what you need to do on that day to help you. Is there, do you need lots of equipment and do you need a, a leotard? Um, there is no requirement for a leotard, but if you wish to wear one... You might get the occasional look. I will not. I will not lie. Generally, comfy clothes. We don't wear shoes in Pilates. It's generally down to the socks. Um, if you've got your own mat, that's great because obviously COVID. Um, but I do have my own, which are sanitised after each time. We use a pillow and then occasional bands and things like that, little Pilates balls, and that's pretty much it. Socks. So you're not you're not slipping on the floor with socks. No, you have an exercise like a yoga mat. They're quite inherently sticky, so you don't tend to slip. You can get yoga socks that do have a bit of a grippy bit on the on the on the bottom, but you can actually use the uh, puffy paint that you get for kids to use. I think it's called like puffy paint. It sort of like foams up when you put it on a t-shirt or something. If you put that on the bottom of a, a sock, it becomes non-slip. Gives you a bit of grip, so you can make your own sort of yoga socks. Um, that's it, really. So it's just that. Maybe have a drink of water. 
And that you don't need any equipment because it's matte, you know, there's no equipment to, to use. We do use occasional bits like uh, the balls and, the, and the, the bands and things like that. And how long do you think it'll be before people notice, if they, if they start coming to your classes on a regular basis, how will they, no they notice that they're improving in any area? Some people really get into some of the exercises that you get a bit of a muscle ache from. Because um, you can kind of do some exercises on your own whilst you're making a cup of tea or something like that. You can just do occasional little bits. Some people have been able to use some of the moves that I do in the class as part of a regime in a gym. So they'll, they'll spend some time on a weights machine, then they'll go and do some uh, mat work. Um, because I can make some, you know, like muscles shake. If, you know, if you really want to, you can really make muscles shake just doing body weight stuff. And the advantage of using body weight is that you, you're not putting too much load through the spine and you might be a bit wobbly. But wobbling is actually really good because that's strengthening all the little muscles around joints, which is actually really important. So most often people generally walk away from a class just feeling a bit relaxed. In terms of muscle tone, I don't necessarily mean that you're going to fall asleep, but the, your legs feel relaxed, you feel a bit more supple. I had one lady last week and we just, I think the week before that, we'd done a really intensive bum workout class. So it's predominantly bums with, with everything else as well. And she said that... Um, for, for men as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pilates is, you know, anyone can, everyone should do it. Um, and she said that she'd had the best night's sleep that she'd ever had unfortunately the population that's, that seems to be incredibly hard to reach is men i don't know what that is i don't know why men don't like pilates it's stupid you know they, you know, they still need to come along and be flexible you need to be, be mobile and you need to lubricate those joints and i would guarantee guarantee hand on heart that if you are an athlete perhaps with bunny ears i don't know um, if you're into your archery, if you're into your weightlifting, if you're into the running, if you come and do Pilates as well as those sports, it will improve that other sport because you're just training the whole body and perhaps at a different level to what you're used to with the sport and it's more all-encompassing. You don't strike me as a commando, though. You're not going to be shouting at people. I don't shout, no. Although I was called a slave driver this week, so... Uh, but that's only because sometimes you've got to push people. If you tell people do 10 reps, they'll do 10 reps. But sometimes they'll just say, well, we'll do, like, two lots of 10 reps. But sometimes they'll say, do that until you physically can't do any more and then do a couple more... Because if you get too fixated on numbers, that can be a bit of a hindrance. And you have to shock your body sometimes, don't you? You do, if, if your you, body but your body wants coming. to do it. Your body wants to have these extra stresses put on it. And there is some, there's one very crucial muscle for pelvic stability called the glute medius. And it's not the glute maximus, which is a really big one at the back of the bum. It's kind of like wraps around the side and the side of the hip. But it's kind of, it's very, very important for pelvic stability and therefore your spine stability. And you can, I can get people working that out with a very small exercise and it can feel like it's on fire. But the next day, it doesn't hurt afterwards. I don't know what it is about that muscle. You don't get the doms with it. It's a, it's a funny one. So once people have done it once, they've got the burn and then they're expecting to be in pain afterwards and they're not, they get into it and they're, I'm going to try and do it more this time. And so you, I'll start people off and I'll say, we'll do about eight reps. And I normally say, after about four, are you feeling it? And most people, if, they, if they're new to it, they'll start feeling it four or five reps in. And then after they've been coming a few weeks, we'll go up to about 10 and then they'll start to feel it about eight. 
so that's what you want. You want the, the muscle to be able to cope with the with the bigger movements. But then there's, there's, I think some people, when you get into exercise and you get that burn, you do get the little bit of doms afterwards and the muscle soreness. It's actually kind of nice because you know you're doing something good. Doms is delayed muscle soreness. Yeah, it? delayed onset muscle so- muscle soreness. Yeah, so it is a thing. It is painful. But unfortunately, that is how you build muscle. So that's how they get stronger. And this is just using your own body weight as the resistance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need to do much. I mean, you can do a squat a thousand different ways. Um, this week we've done plie squats and we've done curtsy squats. And they're quite, um, they're, I've not done them, I've never done them for about, well, I recently came into the knowledge of them about two or three months ago. And they are quite diff- different to a normal squat. Uh, but again, form is key. So you want to make sure that you're doing them correctly before you try and make them harder. Um, but one of the biggest things I find is helpful for most people is the stretching afterwards. You really stretch into some of those muscles and that makes you just feel so nice afterwards. You know, at the time, the stretch is horrible. One of the common muscles that I stretch is the hamstring because in most people it's quite tight because you sat in a chair all day. So um, we stretch that out with the exercise band. And so you can hold it in just a flexed foot stretch. So you can just sort of like lie on the back and have the band around the foot and then try and pull the foot forward and down, toes down, which will cause a stretch in your hamstring. So you can do that with a straight foot, uh, which is fine. And you'll feel a stretch either in the hamstring or behind the knees. But then you can turn your toes out slightly. And because... The muscle fibers of the hamstring, they're kind of in three groups. That'll just shift the stretch around to the other side. And then once you've held that for a section, then you'll turn the toes in. And that is the most, it's, it's, it's horrible. There's the only way of saying it. it is horrible. It's a horrible, horrible stretch. But it's an area of the hamstring that you don't tend to stretch very well. Uh, especially if you're just doing it with a straight leg. So it's those little things that make the big difference. And after you take that stretch away, after you've held it for the correct length of time, your leg feels amazing. It's so good. Where would, uh, if uh, any of our listeners are interested in you, how can they find out more about you? Um, my website is remedypilates, all one word, .co.uk. So that's got the information about my classes, a bit about me, probably what I've already said. And then I think there's a few other bits on there as well. Um, I think I need to do a little more updating on there as well. Uh, I'm also um, a member of Simspa, which is... Uh, I can't remember what the actual sta- the, the SIMSPA stands for. Basically, only professional body for exercise professionals, um, like a chartered institute, I suppose, in a way. So I'm on there, and they recognise when people have done continual professional development, things like that, because I'm always aware that there's always new research out there that's helpful to know about and learn about conditions that have been identified and things that help and hinder it, things like that. So uh, I always try and keep on top of the recent things. So if you wanted to find out what I do, then then that's what I do. If you've got any specific concerns, then, you know, drop me an email. The email address is on there as well. Um, I'm quite happy to talk to anyone about their, their concerns because I think there's a lack of finding out the right answer to things and just getting some help especially if you're in pain you, you you just you just think i think a lot of people get stuck in the whole oh surgery and drugs will help me and yeah they will for a bit but they don't fix the problem so i, I just want to reach as many people as possible um the reason why it's called remedy pilates is pilates to me has been a remedy that's helped my back pain and my back history uh, and i know that it will help others but there are also various other little remedies that you can apply to daily life that will help your 
you know, you, your body just sort of be better, you know, like drinking more water, um, trying to eat more healthily, trying to reduce some of the processed food, getting out and being active 10 times. The NHS do an app called uh, Active 10 and you have your phone in your pocket and it's encouraging you to go for a good 10 minute walk every, three times a day. And they obviously there's like a bit of a community with that as well. And that's what people want to get, you know, the communities to do, populations to do. Um, so I think there's there's a lot out there that I can help with. I can We can chat about things that I found helpful that have helped me. Unfortunately, there isn't a cure-all for, for back pain. You've just got to find what works for you. Uh, but there's lots of remedies out there. Um, it's just building up that whole section of things that will help. And then you'll be a lot better for it, really. I might have to come to a class. I might have okay. to do a, a recording yeah. of the class and play that to the listeners. Yeah, there'll be, be a lot of... Uh, yeah. Lots of puffing and panting. Well, that's great. Um, Samantha, is there anything I've not asked you? We've both got lists here and we've not referred to them at all. The one thing I would perhaps say that we didn't touch on about the training aspect of things is that I said obviously did 100 hours a day, pretty much, whilst I was at the height of my training. Um, one thing that I um, becomes apparent when you start to do a lot of competitions, especially in the summer, is that you will do you do a shoot over the whole day, so you have the lunch in between. And I think a lot of experienced archers will, will know what I'm saying. When you get to the shorter distances, it's almost harder because obviously you put a lot of effort in the morning session and then you come to the afternoon session and you think it'd be easier because everything's coming closer, but you're tireder is to actually train when you're tired. You've normally you train and you, you're fresh. And I think that that's where the mind game comes in. So you're, you're already tired. Even maybe the arrows start to drop, so you overcompensate by pulling too much. Um, so that kind of some, is something I would like to explore, is, is to not to train to, to exhaustion, but make sure that you're putting the time in so that you can get to a... You know, you're getting a bit tired and you're getting a bit sore, but then trying to maintain your consistency with the shooting for that period. So on the days when you don't want to train because you've had a hard day at work, go then because you're I tired. I guess so, yeah. I mean, it's it's just a, it's just trying to replicate that tiredness that you feel at the, at the start of the afternoon session, but using that as a way of training. Because I think that's when you can lose a competition in, in the afternoon because... You've taken the time in the morning. You've, you've, you know, you've done okay. The scores are okay. I think you allow yourself a little bit more error with distance. See, oh, it's you know, it's hundred yards. I'm going to miss a few times. And then there's an expectation that as you bring the target closer, that you shouldn't miss. And invariably you do. And that's when the mind gets in. It's like, oh, there's something wrong, you know. And Too maybe I should need to try. It. I'm doing something wrong. I need to do this, you know. So I think that's something that um, I don't think. People necessarily do that because you don't think, oh, I'll get tired first, then I'll go and do some shooting. But I think in a lot of ways that that would help people shooting in the long run because you'll be aware of what happens to you when you get tired. So that would be something I'd be uh, interested in in the future. Excellent. I really think you want to go back to archery. I think you should I do, definitely. It's been difficult setting up a business, especially in a pandemic. So once I get things settled down, um, I might find it easier to find my own route back into archery um i do actually have an archery target at home which i keep saying to the husband can you put that back together for me? oh we never use it though it's not on back together is it so my own worst enemy so i would i would love to get back into it 
Um, especially now I've got a new riser and a you know a new bow and everything, so it looks really swish and it does shoot very smoothly. So it's uh, it's definitely it, it'd be something to be a challenge for, but. Yeah, I would like to get back into it for I'm, sure. And I'm also trying to think of a role that you could play as in the fitness instructor for archery or something. Yeah, I mean, there are definite Pilates exercises that will help people, you know, with archery. And I want to do that. I want to help someone's archery get better using Pilates exercises and, and perhaps some of the, the, the principles as well. But I also would like to help people anyway, you know, in the general life, like if they have back problems if they have back pain if they wake up stiff in the morning what can they do you know I'd, I'd help them with that as well so yeah pilates can help archers but it help with the archery but it can also just help archers because the people at the end of the day um and like i said before people need to be a bit more proactive in terms of looking after themselves it's not just about eating you know carrots and veg and fruit it's about not having prolonged sitting going for walks and not doing repeated bending and twisting, things like that. That's excellent. And that is a great note to end on. So, Samantha, thank you very much. That was a really good podcast. Okay, thank you. And uh, I look forward to coming to one of your classes one day. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another Talk Archery podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to follow this podcast so you don't miss the next episode. You can find Talk Archery on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. If you have any comments, questions or you would like to suggest a person or topic for a future episode, then please email talkarchery600 at gmail.com. Thank you and I hope you will join us soon for another Talk Archery podcast.